what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hanging in the West Building of the main floor of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., is a painting by the 19th century artist John Ward. It's oil on canvas, medium-sized, depicting an Arctic scene. Two whaling ships, the Swan and the Isabella, are brought to life with exacting precision. Carved white icebergs loom behind. In the foreground, a mother polar bear and her cub. A trio of plump seals. A flock of gulls. The piece was created in 1840 in Kingston-upon-Hull, a port city in eastern England that attracted more than a few of the era's accomplished artists. John Ward was the son of a mariner. He grew up learning to paint actual ships before making the jump to doing paintings of ships. This work is called The Northern Whale Fishery, The Swan and Isabella. It's among the artist's best, possibly his masterpiece. But there's this fascinating tidbit about this painting's history. For most of its existence, it had been essentially unheard of, undocumented by art historians and the public. The painting had been passed down through a private collection for 166 years before being sold at auction in 2006 and becoming known to the world. That sale had a ripple effect, one that had very little to do with the painting itself but meant everything to a man named Robert Keating, a 55-year-old pet store owner in Milton, Ontario, a man who'd never seen or heard of this painting and whose life's mystery was about to be solved by its existence. I'm Acey Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Today, we've got two stories about figuring out who we are to each other. Coming up, writer Ivan Coyote on the moment their grandmother in the midst of her late-stage dementia, made Ivan feel fully seen. But first, how an unlikely encounter with a stranger and a 180-year-old painting were the proverbial puzzle pieces for Robert Keating. To introduce Robert's story and the mystery he's been trying to solve for most of his life is the woman who adopted him in April 1965, Robert's mother, Pat. When I picked him up at the hospital when he was seven days old, I looked at the room, the nursery, and they were all facing one way, you know, as the babies are. But one of them had red hair, and I said, that one's mine. <laughs> My name is Pat Keating, and I live in Penetanguishene, Ontario. I am Robert's mother. Yes, I am indeed. Proud mother, too. <laughs> He knew from no age at all that he was adopted. He always talked about his desire to find his mother. And that, that was, that's been foremost in his mind all his life. He just wanted to know who he was, because he knew he was different. He wasn't born to us. I just encouraged him in, in what he was trying to do. But I honestly felt deep inside that he would know 
someday. My name is Robert Keating. I'm 55 years old and I own and operate two uh, pet value retail stores in Milton, Ontario. One day I was working at the store and a customer came in and she bought a, a bag of dog food for her new puppy. And as I carried the bag of dog food to her car, I asked her what she did for a living. And she told me she was a teacher, just making conversation. <laughs> and I asked her if she's had any hobbies. I said, well, you're going to find this very odd. This is a, a, a weird hobby. You've probably never heard of it before, but I'm an adoption search angel. I help adoptees look for their birth parents and vice versa. My name is Colleen O'Grady-Johnson. I am a teacher and I'm also an adoption search angel. And there was this pause. And I looked at her in her eyes and I said, I have a story to tell you. I know someone who needs help. He said, oh, you have no idea how long I've been searching, but I, I cannot find this woman and I'm desperate to find her. Finding my birth mom really started taking focus in and around 1980, 81, 82, as I was 15, 16, 17, just leaving high school. That's when, you know, the fire really lit. And, you know, in 1981, you got out the 15 pound phone book and started flipping through the pages to try to find adoption services or a government number. What prompted it was the desire to meet my mom, to hold her hand, to understand why. And um, the frustration that, that there was some special code that I needed to have access to my life, to my history. Um, every April 10th, I would think about my birth mom and think if she remembered that day. And a year would go by, another birthday would come, and I would have those thoughts all over. But I never gave up. I wanted to solve it for him. I told him that I couldn't make any promises, but I would do everything to see if I could track her down. When Rob met Colleen, I, I'm like, really? I don't, I, I, I don't know. You know, just have your reserves here. My name is Judy Vaillancourt, and I'm married to Robert Keating. Sounds weird that someone is doing that for hobby. I said, for all those many years we've been searching, we haven't come with anything. How can this person? I thought it was odd, but what did I have to lose? I had hit roadblocks for 30 years. How many other angels were there lining up to help me? So, <laughs> Rob emailed me all the details that he knew the very next day. And he told me that his birth name was Michael Bethel. And he was born in Toronto on April the 10th, 1965. And that was all that we knew. I used his birth surname, Bethel, to start my search, but I needed more information. So I sent to Rob the link to a form um, called Form 11315. <laughs> and it is a ministry form called Request for Identifying Information. Colleen provided a link to 
the government documents that needed to be filled out, which I did. And I submitted the documents and I waited. One day we go to the mailbox, open the mail, and there's an envelope from the Ontario government with my birth mother's name, Sarah Joan Bethel. It was another piece of the puzzle, another step, but I was still very leery. I couldn't emotionally become attached to the document or the name until I had proof. And I waited. I waited for Colleen to do her magic. I, of course, used social media. I went on Ancestry. I contacted probably hundreds of people on Ancestry with the same surname. She sent a few pictures of uh, the ladies that were looking for a son born on April the 10th. And I said, oh, come on, Robbie, they don't even look like you. Several months later, I still hadn't found her. I did everything possible to find her. I went through immigration records. I contacted the Ontario College of Nurses, the Ontario College of Teachers, because I thought perhaps she became a teacher or a nurse because many women, that was their chosen career in the 60s. And I came up with nothing. I was so frustrated. I hadn't found anything. And I contacted Rob and I said, Rob, I am not having any luck. I felt badly. And I said, Rob, I'm so sorry. I, I just can't seem to do it. I can't find her. And the door was shutting again. That was it. This was going to be the end of the story. And I asked her if, if I could pay her uh, or how much I owed her for her time. I said, oh, no, 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 Rob, you don't owe me anything. I'm not done. I've only started. I don't give up that easily. My parents were the snoopiest people <laughs> on, on the planet. They were armchair detectives. <laughs> I think they passed that right along to me. I, I've always loved mysteries and I've loved solving puzzles. It started when I was just a little girl. I was uh, in the 1970s. I remember there was a little girl north of Toronto who her name was Cheryl Hansen and she went missing. I remember my parents picked me up from school and we helped in the search. We joined the search party. I still think of it all the time. And I guess in solving other mysteries, it's also helping me sort of come to terms with the fact that this little girl was never found. I hear of a missing person and I want to start looking immediately. And that's what these adoption searches do for me. I'm solving mysteries. I'm finding missing people. She was determined to not give up. She was going to reach out to her angel society and engage other people's help in, in trying to solve this mystery for me. It was at that point that I decided that I was going to stop searching in Canada and I was going to start searching in Europe. Because birth mom apparently was born in England. And I thought, you know, maybe she came to Canada and maybe she returned to England. So I started to go to different sites, different European sites, where I could search for people. I was having some difficulties, though, because I'm used to doing searches in North America and not in Europe. And there was a gentleman on Ancestry.com 
he said, um, do you mind if I help you look? He said, well, I, I live in England and I would love to do this. I help people on Ancestry all the time. So I took him up on it because at this point I, I, I needed all the help that I could get. He sent me the link to uh, an auction site, the Christie's Auction House. And the surname Bethel comes up on this site. I found one particular painting by a John Ward of Hull from the 1800s. The title of it was The Northern Whale Fishery, The Swan and Isabella. The painting was of two ships, the Isabella and the Swan. Two ships against a blue sky, and there are lots of clouds in the photo. I started to read all about this painting and followed its lineage. And I noticed that it had most recently been passed down to some Bethel family members. One of them was a Sarah. Her last name was not Bethel though, her last name was Hamp. And I thought, is there any possible way that Sarah Hamp is Sarah Bethel? That led me to social media. I entered Sarah Hamp and I started scrolling through photos on Facebook and I was shocked. I felt like I was looking at Rob in female form. She had his nose, his eyes, his coloring. She looked so much like him. I thought immediately, I found her. Then I was stuck. That's a really difficult point because I never know who else is looking at the email. I didn't want to betray birth mom in case I had the right person. There's a, always a good chance that she has not told anyone else in the family, and I do not want to be the one to, to betray that. So the first email that I wrote to Sarah, again, another very cryptic email. Dear Sarah, I am trying to find someone. I don't want to waste your time, as I may not even have the right person. So I'm going to ask you one question. Sarah, is the date April 10th significant to you in any way? A few days later, I received an email back from Sarah. I was shaking. I was so scared. I didn't want to open it because I didn't know what to expect. I'm not the right person. Or yes, I am the right person, but I want nothing to do with this. That's the hardest part of doing my adoption searches is first contact. I opened up the email and I read, Dear Colleen, I am the person you Dear are looking Colleen, for. Dear Colleen, I am the person you are looking for. The date of 10th of April, 1965, was when I had a son in Toronto General Hospital who was placed for adoption. So the date has always been very important to me. I left Canada soon after. I was really happy to receive your email and wonder how you feel this may progress. Kind regards, Sarah Joan Hamp. This painting, the Isabella, had been hanging in my mother's house and when she died, the painting was sold. And it was through that painting being sold that Colleen was able to find me. I sent Rob an email and I said, Rob, can we please meet? I didn't give him any details. I didn't tell him that I had found Sarah. I just said, can we please meet so we can talk about the case? So Rob and I met at this little coffee shop next door to his pet store. And we sat down and I said, I just talked to your birth mom. 
She explained to me there was a connection with the last name Hemp through a painting. That was the key to unlock the mystery. So I slid the photo across the counter, and he looked down. He was shaking. She showed me pictures from a Facebook page and told me, this is your mother, and these are your half-brothers and sisters, and they live in England. He just stared at the photo, and I said, this is Sarah, and he stared at that photo, and I said, Rob, this is your birth mom. This is Sarah. He was crying, and I could tell he was in shock. He looked at me, and there was this pause. He got very, very emotional. I couldn't believe. I knew, I knew that my birth mom was alive and that we had found each other. His first question was, how does she feel about this? That's really what it got down to was Sarah's reaction. So I said, look at Rob, I'm in contact with Sarah. What information do you want me to give her at this point? And Rob said, everything. Tell her where I live, tell her what I do, give her my email, give her my phone number, give her everything. I came home and, and shared the picture with my wife, Julie, and um, Julie laughed and said, well, you look the same. And she was happy and emotional that I had found my birth mom. So that night, I called my mom, Pat Keating, and shared the news with her. Oh dear, I'm not much good at talking about emotions. As far as that's concerned, I was just very happy for him to find his mother. And I was very confident in the fact that I was his mother and that we were, we were very close together and had done so many things and come through so many things together that I had no worries that I would lose Rob. So that was good. I was just happy for him that he, he had another piece of the puzzle to fit in his life. I told Pat how lucky I was to have two mums and how how thankful I am and how blessed I am to have her and she raised me and cared for me and she was everything uh, a son would want in a mother. It took me some time to get used to the idea that suddenly 55 years later, I've got a son who is trying to contact me. Of course, I had read in the past that things like this can happen, but I never really thought that it would happen with me. The unknown made me nervous. You don't know, <laughs> you don't know what you're letting yourself in for. As, of course, he didn't know what he was letting himself in for. Yes, I was his birth mother, I am his birth mother, but he <laughs> didn't know anything about me. I was a bit wary because you don't know why he wanted to contact 
some people want to contact their parents because uh, they have grievances, they have etc. Do you understand what I'm saying? My name is Paddy Hamp. I'm, I'm the husband of Sarah Hamp and we've been married for 50 years. There hasn't been, a, I don't think, a week or a day gone by that at some stage Sarah's mentioned over the years, I wonder how my son has been. Is he happy? Did he settle with uh, his adoptive parents? It was always a burden that she had. Um, but we didn't want to ruin Rob's life by uh, interfering. Perhaps he didn't want to know. And perhaps his adoptive parents didn't tell him. So although we wanted to and Sarah wanted to find out, there was always that thing, perhaps it wasn't the right time. Colleen provided my email address and I waited to hopefully receive an email from Sarah and that email arrived a few days later. The first emails exchanged between Rob and myself are a question of finding out about each other. You could almost have a CV of somebody, couldn't you, to find out what they've been doing. Just really quite mundane things. But it's the mundane things that make life go around, isn't it? Rob was ready to go and meet her the next day. I said, okay, you have to give everybody time here to digest the news. Then we can make plans. And I think his mother needed that time to just prepare herself. We corresponded through email from June until August. At that point, I had mentioned if she was open to the idea of meeting face-to-face, -face, I could fly over to England and we could meet each other. Paddy and myself are great people for holidays. So we had said to Rob we were going to be in Vancouver and could he meet us in Vancouver? And of course he said yes. Oh, we were so nervous. He was on the airplane and I, he disappeared for a long while. And then he came out of the washroom and his eyes were like totally red. He says, I don't know, I've got so much emotion. I don't know if I can go through this. I was, <laughs> I was extremely nervous. My emotional state was all over the place to be meeting this man, 55 years later, I had worried about what I was going to be wearing, <laughs> what I was going to be wearing. And that morning, I had been to the cathedral and prayed that the meeting would go well. Well, she was all in a twitch, of course. Sarah was all in a twitch, but she's British and she's English. So you always have to keep something in reserve. That's the way she is. So her emotions can be boiling over, but it just seems as though, you know, it's just one of those things. But of course, as soon as I went down and brought him up, then she couldn't contain herself. We were in um, an apartment in Vancouver near Stanley Park. And so at the right time, Paddy went downstairs to meet Rob and Julie and he brought them upstairs 
and he stood outside the door and he said, there's somebody here who wants to meet you. The hotel door opens and there's Sarah standing in the hotel room and I get to see my birth mom for the first time. I saw this really tall, this really tall man. And so for a second I thought, oh right, so this is Rob. <laughs> and I walk across the room and I put my hand out to shake her hand and she gently pushes my hand aside and gives me the the world's best hug that a son could ever receive. My son, after 55 years, after 55 years, first time I'd been able to hold him since I'd given birth to him. It was extraordinary. I, it, was, it was something that I'd never thought was going to happen. But I was blessed with it. She wrapped their arms around them and they just stood hugging each other for ages. There was no need for any words. And that was it. It was all done. All those years, all the trauma, all disappeared in about five minutes. As if there'd never been any, any distance at all. If you say you can feel electricity in a room, then that's, that's what was in that room. The surprise, actually, was the immediate um, connection that I felt as soon as I saw him. This rush of connection and this feeling of love. Like almost as if you're falling in love again for the first time. The whole time we were there in the afternoon, she was holding his hand and did not stop holding his hands the whole time. We sat side by side and looked through the photo albums and just getting a better glimpse into our past. I learned from Sarah the reason why she had come to Canada to be a childcare provider. She answered an ad in the paper to be a nanny. And I had a very brief relationship and found that I was pregnant. I had no family support. I was 23 years old when I found I was pregnant. I didn't want to be pregnant. It was a total shock. Being um, what we would then call being an unmarried um, mother was certainly a, a drama and not something that I had ever wanted to be. My parents were really quite strict and would have been really horrified. So I stayed on in Canada and they had no idea of what was happening. And of course, in that time, abortion was illegal. And I was far too frightened to go and do anything about that. I was told it was going to be what was called a private adoption. April the 10th, 1965. Birth pangs had started. I went into hospital 
and the baby was born. I do remember to stop the milk coming through, I had my breasts bound and after not many days, I left hospital without the baby. I went back to England and I had left this baby behind. And it's something actually that you never, you never really get over. There was always a sadness in my life knowing that I'd had a child adopted and wondering how his life had been. It was a secret. It's been a secret for, year, for years and years and years only known to my husband and recently to my children. Knowing that a, a young woman went through that by herself in a foreign land, keeping it a secret and came to the understanding that this is the best thing for this little baby. Uh, I recognized how brave she is and I thank her for it. It was a sadness that I had carried with me for 55 years and now wasn't going to be a sadness any longer. The sadness had turned into joy. And I knew then that he was going to be in my life for the rest of my life. It's just felt so natural. The stories and the laughter just flowed. We went out to dinner together and kept talking all night, made plans for the following day. Those few days that we spent in Vancouver, <laughs> we did get to know that he likes his, um, he likes his cookies. <laughs> This is taking baby steps to really establish a relationship and to build trust and understanding. There's still many questions to be answered and to talk about and talk through, but I fulfilled my need to find her. I can't take away from Pat what she has meant to Rob for all those years. I wonder how Pat feels about me, about somebody who could give up a child, which she was able to raise as her own. I've never, I haven't spoken to Pat. It hasn't really been suggested. I would rather meet her face to face. Oh yes, I'd like to meet her. Oh, very much so, yeah. I'd like to talk to her and and tell her about Rob as a kid and learn about her children. So I'll be glad to talk to her and we'll talk this out, she and I, together, about feelings of, of being mothers and mother to this wonderful boy. I love him very, very much and he keeps assuring me he loves me. <laughs> 
I get sort of emotional talking about it all. <laughs> I guess what brings out the emotion is my love for him. And maybe vice versa. We're very close. A lot of love. Was the traffic bad? A little bit of traffic and a little bit of a little bit of me being late. So my relationship with Pat has stayed very much mother and son. I've mentioned to her how much I love her and and that she'll always be my mom who raised me and cared for me and guided me through good times and bad times. My love for her is forever. Our relationship has stayed solid and firm ever since I found Sarah. If Sarah was going to come to Toronto on for April the 10th, 2020, my birthday, and we were going to celebrate 55 years, but um, that has been postponed due to the, uh, the virus and the pandemic. It would have been the very first birthday that we had been able to spend together since he was born. I'm going to be 80 soon and <laughs> I won't go on forever. So there is a sense of urgency. I want to be with him. I don't want to be separated by thousands of miles. I want to be that much closer to him. On April the 10th, I receive my very first birthday card from my birth mom. Dear Sarah, just the so card wonderful. you sent me meant more than anything you will know. When I started my search for you in 1980, I had dreams that one day I would meet you, hold your hand and look into your eyes. In later years, on each April the 10th, I would think of you and wonder, why, where are you, and are you thinking of me on this day? My searches there hit many roadblocks, and I would get frustrated, but deep down inside my soul I had hope. The card you sent me opened floodgates and proved that I do have an angel looking over me. It's funny to think that there's a little group of people that are doing this for other strangers to search the world over to find these connections. So it's uh, out there in the universe, but probably your next door neighbor. <laughs> I've been, the store's been open six years now, and I've had conversations with people for six years carrying their food to their cars on the parking lot. In six years, I've asked one person if they had a hobby. So what prompted me? I don't know. But I'm glad I did. <laughs> so many people are stuck carrying this on their shoulders day in and day out. 
they want answers. They don't know how to go about it. And people need to know where they came from. I guess that is what I feel I'm giving to them. I'm, I'm giving them that sense of peace and the answers to their identity. And that just makes me feel good. We all deserve to know where we came from. But in this case, it, it was perfect. This story had a fairy tale ending. This is one of my favorite reunion stories. Case closed. I can close the book on this one. That doc was produced by Eliza Siegel. It was edited by Allison Cook. On our website, you can see photos of baby Robert with his mother, Pat Keating, and adult Robert with his birth mother, Sarah Hamp. Also, you can see John Ward's painting, The Northern Whale Fishery, The Swan, and Isabella. I mean, it is an extraordinary story, isn't it? It is extraordinary that this painting, The Isabella, had been hanging in my mother's house and when she died the painting was sold and it was through that painting being sold that Colleen was able to find me. So it's thanks to the painting and Colleen, detective work, that we are where we are now. See it on our website, cbc.ca slash docproject. It's funny, Since the painting was purchased in the 1800s by a Samuel John Talbot Hassel, the family has kept detailed records as it was passed down and occasionally across generations. This kind of record keeping is standard practice for fine art, but it means Robert can trace his family history simply by looking back through the painting's ownership. In a way, this painting, it wasn't just the key to Robert finding his family, but it shares his family tree. Just a thought. Coming up, the story of a matriarch giving her family what they needed, or close enough, before saying goodbye. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretab. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretab. Uh, I mean, I knew you had on a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Ivan Coyote is the author of 12 books. Their 11th, Tomboy Survival Guide, chronicles Ivan's childhood growing up in Whitehorse in a massive, tight-knit family, surrounded by some dozen female cousins, some dozen male cousins, and then, somewhere in the middle, Ivan. Ivan is gender non-binary, or as Ivan likes to say, a proud gender failure. In all of their big, extended family, there was one person who Ivan adored, but was never totally sure had stopped seeing them as a her. Ivan's grandma, Patricia. Then, a few years ago, just as time was running out, Ivan got an answer in the most unexpected of ways. Ivan will take it from here. 
She was born in um, in Thunder Bay, what's now known as Thunder Bay. She grew up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and uh, my whole family's very tight. And uh, I used to spend a lot of time with her as a kid. She was an autodidact. Every wall of her entire house was full of books that she had read. And uh, she was, I think, probably the reason I became a writer. She was really into books and I was into books. And so anytime I ever showed any interest in anything, she would invariably track down some book on her shelves that had to do with it. I was reading Lord of the Rings and I was obsessed with the character Strider. And uh, she'd clipped out something about uh, like someone doing a good deed every day. And um, I got this idea about doing a good deed every day. And so... Um, she used to have a wood fireplace in her living room. So I waited after school one time until she was out of the house and I went over and I chopped a whole bunch of kindling and left it by her by her front door and I didn't tell anyone about it. And uh, she asked me if I knew anything about it. And I told her that Strider had done it. <laughs> and she just smiled at me and then she just called me Strider every every once in a while for like the next year after that. And there was also this other time where I decided to call myself Steve for a little while. I don't know where I got it from. And I had never heard the term trans or I didn't know any of that stuff. I was just young. I think I was probably, I don't know, nine years old. But she also called me Steve for quite a while, while I was in my Steve phase. She was the only member of my family who would play along with that potentially, you know, cross-gendering <laughs> um, business. My grandmother Patricia was a badass. I, I think that's the... That's the most simple term for her. Well, she didn't get sick. She got really old. <laughs> like, she she was struggling with um, living at home. She lived at home until months before, you know, she... Um, she slipped and uh, cracked her hip, I think is what happened. And uh, um, I think it was my uncle Rob who was sort of doing a lot of the elder care. And um, I think we, as a family, but sort of led by my uncle Rob, we um, she went into an extended care facility. Uh, I went home in February. I had this, uh, I had a gig and um, she hated the word gig for some reason. It used to sort of send her into kind of a, gig she'd always say what do you what do you mean you got a you got a reading and I'd say well yeah it's kind of a reading sort of anyway I went home in February um to go see her and uh um well I went home in February for a gig and I went in to go see her and it was I got there kind of late at night it was like eight o'clock at night and I remember it was minus 33 degrees Celsius before the wind chill factor so it was freezing cold and dark outside and I go into the extended care facility and they've just got the heat just cranked right up to 11. And uh, so I'm immediately just sweating. I'm wearing my parka and I walk down through this kind of maze of hallways. You got to go through the dining room and 
I can see my grandma in her little room, the door's open, and I can see her, she's asleep, her back's turned towards me. I don't know if you know, but if you if you don't see someone for a while, when they're kind of in that uh, late stage of their of their life, they kind of become smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was uh, once again just struck by how how little of her seemed to be left. You know, she's she's sleeping on her side, but her dress was pulled up, and she had just these unbearably thin legs. I sat down, there was like this rolly chair next to her bed, so I sat down in it, and as soon as the chair squeaked, she woke up, and she she seemed really happy to see me, and she was like, look at you, oh, you, look at you, you are so handsome, look at you, my beautiful boy, and she kind of sat up, and she motioned for me to sit right next to her on the hospital bed, and um, I, I remember it because uh, there was like a plastic sheet on it and it was all crinkly. And she kept saying, look, look at you. Look how my beautiful boy, look at my beautiful boy. And she reached out and she kind of like, she had these skinny little arms now. And she reached out and she kind of took my neck and she pulled my whole head down to her chest. But you have to understand that like, she was not cuddly. She was old school Irish family her mom was an ex-nun. Like, they, we weren't a cuddly people in general in my family. But my Uncle Rob had warned me about this. He said, oh, she's, we're getting close to the to the end. He said, I think she's, um, she's getting a bit confused and stuff like that. And he, and he said, she's, and she's cuddly. You know, it's like, it's, it's weird. And, you know, she gets confused easily now. And she's, she's confusing times and people and, he said, so you haven't been home for a little bit, so just don't freak out. Like, don't take it too personally if she thinks you're someone else, you know. So just don't take it personal if she if she thinks you're one of the staff, maybe, something like that, right? And she, and she kept on, like, stroking my head. She was like, my beautiful boy. And I was like, oh, my grandma's losing her, losing her marbles. But I thought, I wonder who she thinks I am. Like, is, does she think I'm, like, my dad or, or my Uncle Rob or one of my cousins? And uh, she kept just saying that over and over, you know, my beautiful, beautiful boy. And we were having this kind of moment. But then all of a sudden she, she had kind of both of my cheek cupped in both of her hands like that. And all of a sudden she sort of like smacked me. She looks me right in the eye. She goes, is that what I should call you? Hey, do I call you my beautiful grandson or my beautiful granddaughter? Oh, I never know with you. So in late May of 2017, my Uncle Rob went in to visit her, my grandmother, Patricia. First thing she asked him was what day of the week it was. It's Saturday, Mom, he told her. She took a small breath. She announced that it was going to be her last Saturday. Oh, you don't know that, Rob said. You don't know that, Mom. But she gave him that look, her look. She had this real withering look that she could lay on you. 
It was kind of terrifying, that look, and she remained capable of wielding that look for far longer than she physically should have been able to, in my opinion. And that look, her look, it was usually paired with a frustrated blast of nose breath like this. (sighs) Don't you tell me what I know, she said. This is my last Saturday, and I, I need you to do me a few last things. So Rob nodded. She said, I need you to go downtown, get me a few things I need. And if I know her, and I did. She counted those things off visually on her left hand with the first slender finger of her right. I need four cards, blank cards. I need four envelopes. I need four blank checks. And I need my exact bank balance from my savings account, please. And a pen, a good pen. She shot him her look again. So Rob, the ever the dutiful son, he went downtown, he got everything, and he came back about an hour later. He pulled the little rolling table over, and she half sat up in her hospital bed. She divided her remaining money into four exactly equal sums, and she wrote four checks, one for each of her four sons. She tucked each check into an envelope and told Rob to make sure they all cashed them right away. Don't wait, even a day. Do not let the bank swallow any of this up in their red tape. She was adamant about this. Then she opened up the first card and she wrote, Dear Robert, you were always my favorite son. Don't tell your brothers. And in the second card she wrote, Dear Donald, you were always my favorite son. Don't tell your brothers. Then, dear Fred, You were always my favorite son, and so on, four times. She was 97 when she passed away. Uh, She was herself right, right up until the end. That piece was written by Ivan Coyote, adapted from one of their essays in their 2016 book, Tomboy Survival Guide. It was originally broadcast in October of 2018. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Tanera McLean, Sherry Okeke, Mark Apollonio, Julia Poggle, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.